Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to The Well-Told Tale. Every week we bring you the finest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. The Well-Told Tale is available as a podcast on YouTube and via our Patreon page, where there are additional stories exclusively for patrons. Please do check out the link in the description if you're interested in that. Today, we return to The Alchemist by Paul Coelho. We left our hero, Santiago, setting sail for Africa. He has sold his flock of sheep, given up his life in Spain in pursuit of a promised treasure, which he will apparently find at the pyramids. Watching him go is the mysterious Melchizedek, king of Salem, whose sage advice the boy has followed so far, but what will he find in Africa? Will he follow the omens and find his treasure? It's time to pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy part two of The Alchemist by Paul Quello. At the highest point in Tarifa, there is an old fort built by the Moors. From atop its walls, one can catch a glimpse of Africa. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, sat on the wall of the fort that afternoon and felt the levanter blowing in his face. The sheep fidgeted nearby, uneasy with their new owner and excited by so much change. All they wanted was food and water. Melchizedek watched a small ship that was ploughing its way out of the port. He would never again see the boy, just as he had never seen Abraham again after having charged him his one-tenth fee. That was his work. The gods should not have desires, because they don't have destinies, but the king of Salem hoped desperately that the boy would be successful. It's too bad that he's quickly going to forget my name, he thought. I should have repeated it for him. Then, when he spoke about me, he would say that I am Melchizedek, the king of Salem. He looked to the skies, feeling a bit abashed, and said, I know it is the vanity of vanities, as you said, my lord, but an old king sometimes has to take some pride in himself. How strange Africa is, thought the boy. He was sitting in a bar very much like the other bars he had seen along the narrow streets of Tangier. Some men were smoking from a gigantic pipe that they passed from one to the other. In just a few hours he had seen men walking hand in hand, women with their faces covered, and priests that climbed to the tops of towers and chanted as everyone about him went to their knees and placed their foreheads on the ground. A practice of infidels, he said to himself. As a child in church, he had always looked at the image of St. Santiago Metamoros on his white horse, his sword unsheathed, and figures such as these kneeling at his feet. The boy felt ill and terribly alone. The infidels had an evil look about them. Besides this, in the rush of his travels he had forgotten a detail, just one detail, which could keep him from his treasure for a long time. Only Arabic was spoken in this country. The owner of the bar approached him, and the boy pointed to a drink that had been served at the next table. It turned out to be bitter tea. The boy preferred wine. But he didn't need to worry about that right now. What he had to be concerned about was his treasure, and how he was going to go about getting it. The sale of his sheep had left him with enough money in his pouch, and the boy knew that in money there was magic. Whoever has money is never really alone. Before long, maybe in just a few days, he would be at the pyramids. 
An old man with a breastplate of gold wouldn't have lied just to acquire six sheep. The old man had spoken about signs and omens, and as the boy was crossing the strait, he had thought about omens. Yes, the old man had known what he was talking about. During the time the boy had spent in the fields of Andalusia, he had become used to learning which path he should take by observing the ground and the sky. He had discovered that the presence of a certain bird meant that a snake was nearby, and that a certain shrub was a sign that there was water in the area. The sheep had taught him that. If God leads the sheep so well, he will also lead a man, he thought, and that made him feel better. The tea seemed less bitter. Who are you? he heard a voice ask him in Spanish. The boy was relieved. He was thinking about omens, and someone had appeared. How come you speak Spanish? he asked. The new arrival was a young man in western dress, but the colour of his skin suggested he was from this city. He was about the same age and height as the boy. Almost everyone here speaks Spanish. We're only two hours from Spain. Sit down and let me treat you to something, said the boy, and ask for a glass of wine for me. I hate this tea. There is no wine in this country, the young man said. The religion here forbids it. The boy told him then that he needed to get to the pyramids. He almost began to tell about his treasure, but decided not to do so. If he did, it was possible that the Arab would want a part of it as payment for taking him there. He remembered what the old man had said about offering something you didn't even have yet. "'I'd like you to take me there, if you can. I can pay you to serve as my guide.' "'Do you have any idea how to get there?' the newcomer asked. The boy noticed that the owner of the bar stood nearby, listening attentively to their conversation. He felt uneasy at the man's presence. But he had found a guide, and didn't want to miss out on an opportunity. "'You have to cross the entire Sahara Desert,' said the young man. "'And to do that you need money. I need to know whether you have enough.' The boy thought it a strange question, but he trusted in the old man, who had said that when you really want something, the universe always conspires in your favour. He took his money from his pouch and showed it to the young man. The owner of the bar came over and looked as well. The two men exchanged some words in Arabic and the bar owner seemed irritated. Let's get out of here, said the new arrival. He wants us to leave. The boy was relieved. He got up to pay the bill but the owner grabbed him and began to speak to him in an angry stream of words. The boy was strong and wanted to retaliate but he was in a foreign country. His new friend pushed the owner aside and pulled the boy outside with him. He wanted your money, he said. Tangier is not like the rest of Africa. This is a port and every port has its thieves. The boy trusted his new friend. He had helped him out in a dangerous situation. He took out his money and counted it. We could get to the pyramids by tomorrow, said the other, taking the money, but I have to buy two camels. They walked together through the narrow streets of Tangier. Everywhere there were stalls with items for sale. They reached the centre of a large plaza where the market was held. There were thousands of people there, arguing, selling and buying, vegetables for sale amongst daggers, and carpets displayed alongside tobacco. But the boy never took his eye off his new friend. After all, he had all his money. He thought about asking him to give it back, but decided that would be unfriendly. He knew nothing about the customs of the strange land he was in. I'll just watch him, he said to himself. He knew he was stronger than his friend. Suddenly, 
There, in the midst of all that confusion, he saw the most beautiful sword he had ever seen. The scabbard was embossed in silver, and the handle was black and encrusted with precious stones. The boy promised himself that, when he returned from Egypt, he would buy that sword. "'Ask the owner of that stall how much the sword costs,' he said to his friend. Then he realised that he had been distracted for a few moments, looking at the sword. His heart squeezed as if his chest had suddenly compressed it. He was afraid to look around because he knew what he would find— He continued to look at the beautiful sword for a bit longer until he summoned the courage to turn around. All around him was the market, with people coming and going, shouting and buying, and the aroma of strange foods, but nowhere could he find his new companion. The boy wanted to believe that his friend had simply become separated from him by accident. He decided to stay right there and await his return. As he waited, A priest climbed to the top of a nearby tower and began his chant. Everyone in the market fell to their knees, touched their foreheads to the ground and took up the chant. Then, like a colony of worker ants, they dismantled their stalls and left. The sun began its departure as well. The boy watched it through its trajectory for some time until he was hidden behind the white houses surrounding the plaza. He recalled that when the sun had risen that morning... He was on another continent, still a shepherd with sixty sheep, and looking forward to meeting with a girl. That morning he had known everything that was going to happen to him as he walked through the familiar fields, but now, as the sun began to set, he was in a different country, a stranger in a strange land, where he couldn't even speak the language. He was no longer a shepherd, and he had nothing, not even the money to return and start everything over. All this happened between sunrise and sunset, the boy thought. He was feeling sorry for himself, and lamenting the fact that his life could have changed so suddenly and so drastically. He was so ashamed that he wanted to cry. He had never even wept in front of his own sheep, but the marketplace was empty and he was far from home, so he wept. He wept because God was unfair, and because this was the way God repaid those who believed in their dreams. When I had my sheep, I was happy, and I made those around me happy. People saw me coming and welcomed me, he thought. But now I'm sad and alone. I'm going to become bitter and distrustful of people because one person betrayed me. I'm going to hate those who have found their treasure because I never found mine. And I'm going to hold on to what little I have because I'm too insignificant to conquer the world. He opened his pouch to see what was left of his possessions. Maybe there was a bit left of the sandwich he had eaten on the ship, but all he found was the heavy book, his jacket, and the two stones the old man had given him. As he looked at the stones, he felt relieved for some reason. He had exchanged six sheep for two precious stones that had been taken from a gold breastplate. He could sell the stones and buy a return ticket, but this time... I'll be smarter, the boy thought, removing them from the pouch so he could put them in his pocket. This was a port town, and the only truthful thing his friend had told him was that port towns are full of thieves. Now he understood why the owner of the bar had been so upset. He was trying to tell him not to trust that man. I'm like everyone else. I see the world in terms of what I would like to see happen, not what actually does. 
He ran his fingers slowly over the stones, sensing their temperature and feeling the surfaces. They were his treasure. Just handling them made him feel better. They reminded him of the old man. When you want something, all the universe conspires in helping you to achieve it, he had said. The boy was trying to understand the truth of what the old man had said. There he was in the empty marketplace, without a cent to his name, and with not a sheep to guard through the night. But the stones were proof that he had met with a king, a king who knew of the boy's past. They're called Urim and Thummim, and they can help you to read the omens. The boy put the stones back in the pouch and decided to do an experiment. The old man had said to ask very clear questions, and to do that the boy had to know what he wanted, so he asked if the old man's blessing was still with him. He took out one of the stones. It was yes. "'Am I going to find my treasure?' he asked. He stuck his hand into the pouch and felt around for one of the stones. As he did so, both of them pushed through a hole in the pouch and fell to the ground. The boy had never even noticed that there was a hole in his pouch. He knelt down to find Urim and Thummim and put them back in the pouch, but as he saw them lying there on the ground, another phrase came to his mind. Learn to recognise omens and follow them, the old king had said. An omen? The boy smiled to himself. He picked up the two stones and put them back in his pouch. He didn't consider mending the hole. The stones could fall through any time they wanted. He had learned that there were certain things that one shouldn't ask about, so as not to flee from one's own destiny. I promised that I would make my own decisions, he said to himself. But the stones had told him that the old man was still with him, and that made him feel more confident. He looked around at the empty plaza again, feeling less desperate than before. This wasn't a strange place. It was a new one. After all, what he had always wanted was just that, to know new places. Even if he never got to the pyramids, he had already travelled further than any shepherd he knew. Oh, if they only knew how different things are, just two hours by ship from where they are, he thought. Although his new world at the moment was just an empty marketplace, he had already seen it when it was teeming with life, and he would never forget it. He remembered the sword. It hurt him a bit just to think about it, but he had never seen one like it before. As he mused about these things, he realised that he had to choose between thinking of himself as the poor victim of a thief and as an adventurer in quest of his treasure. I'm an adventurer looking for treasure, he said to himself. He was shaken into wakefulness by someone. He had fallen asleep in the middle of the marketplace and life in the plaza was about to resume. Looking round, he sought his sheep and then realised that he was in a new world. But instead of being saddened, he was happy. He no longer had to seek out food and water for the sheep. He could go in search of his treasure instead. He had not a cent in his pocket, but he had faith. He had decided the night before that he would be as much an adventurer as the ones he had admired in books. He walked slowly through the marketplace. The merchants were assembling their stalls, and the boy helped the candy seller to do his. The candy seller had a smile on his face. He was happy, aware of what his life was about, and ready to begin a day's work. His smile reminded the boy of the old man, the mysterious old king he had met. 
This candy merchant isn't making candy so that later he can travel or marry a shopkeeper's daughter. He's doing it because it's what he wants to do, thought the boy. He realised that he could do the same thing the old man had done, sense whether a person was near to or far from his destiny, just by looking at them. It's easy, and yet I've never done it before, he thought. When the stall was assembled, the candy seller offered the boy the first sweet he had made for the day. The boy thanked him, ate it, and went on his way. When he had only gone a short distance, he realised that while they were erecting the stall, one of them had spoken Arabic and the other Spanish, and they had understood each other perfectly well. There must be a language that doesn't depend on words, the boy thought. I've already had that experience with my sheep, Now it's happening with people. He was learning a lot of new things. Some of them were things that he had already experienced and weren't really new, but that he had never perceived before. And he hadn't perceived them because he had become accustomed to them. He realised, if I can learn to understand this language without words, I can learn to understand the world. Relaxed and unhurried, he resolved that he would walk through the narrow streets of Tangier. Only in that way would he be able to read the omens. He knew it would require a lot of patience, but shepherds know all about patience. Once again he saw that, in that strange land, he was applying the same lessons he had learned with his sheep. All things are one, the old man had said. The crystal merchant awoke with the day, and felt the same anxiety that he felt every morning. He had been in the same place for thirty years, a shop at the top of a hilly street where few customers passed. Now it was too late to change anything. The only thing he had ever learned to do was to buy and sell crystal glassware. There had been a time when many people knew of his shop. Arab merchants, French and English geologists, German soldiers who were always well-heeled, In those days, it had been wonderful to be selling crystal, and he had thought how he would become rich and have beautiful women at his side as he grew older. But as time passed, Tangier had changed. The nearby city of Quetta had grown faster than Tangier, and business had fallen off. Neighbours moved away, and there remained only a few small shops on the hill. And no one was going to climb the hill just to browse through a few small shops. But the crystal merchant had no choice. He had lived thirty years of his life buying and selling crystal pieces, and now it was too late to do anything else. He spent the entire morning observing the infrequent comings and goings in the street. He had done this for years, and knew the schedule of everyone who passed. But just before lunchtime, a boy stopped in front of the shop. He was dressed normally, but the practised eyes of the crystal merchant could see that the boy had no money to spend. Nevertheless, the merchant decided to delay his lunch for a few minutes until the boy had moved on. A card hanging in the doorway announced that several languages were spoken in the shop. The boy saw a man appear behind the counter. "'I can clean up those glasses in the window if you want,' said the boy. "'The way they look now, nobody is going to want to buy them.' The man looked at him without responding. In exchange, you could give me something to eat. The man still said nothing, and the boy sensed that he was going to have to make a decision. In his pouch, he had his jacket. He certainly wasn't going to need it in the desert. Taking the jacket out, he began to clean the glasses. In half an hour, 
He had cleaned all the glasses in the window, and as he was doing so, two customers had entered the shop and bought some crystal. When he had completed the cleaning, he asked the man for something to eat. "'Let's go and have some lunch,' said the crystal merchant. He put a sign on the door, and they went to a small café nearby. As they sat down at the only table in the place, the crystal merchant laughed. "'You didn't have to do any cleaning,' he said. "'The Koran requires me to feed a hungry person.' "'Well, then, why did you let me do it?' the boy asked. "'Because the crystal was dirty.' and both you and I needed to cleanse our minds of negative thoughts. When they had eaten, the merchant turned to the boy and said, I'd like you to work in my shop. Two customers came in today while you were working, and that's a good omen. People talk a lot about omens, thought the shepherd, but they really don't know what they're saying, just as I hadn't realised that for so many years I had been speaking a language without words to my sheep. Do you want to work for me? the merchant asked. I can work for the rest of today, the boy answered. I'll work all night until dawn and I'll clean every piece of crystal in your shop. In return, I need money to get to Egypt tomorrow. The merchant laughed. Even if you cleaned my crystal for an entire year, even if you earned a good commission selling every piece, you would still have to borrow money to get to Egypt. There are thousands of kilometres of desert between here and there. There was a moment of silence, so profound that it seemed the city was asleep. No sound from the bazaars. No arguments among the merchants. No men climbing to the towers to chant. No hope. No adventure. No old kings or destinies. No treasure. And no pyramids. It was as if the world had fallen silent because the boy's soul had. He sat there staring blankly through the door of the café, wishing that he had died, and that everything would end forever at that moment. The merchant looked anxiously at the boy. All the joy he had seen that morning had suddenly disappeared. "'I can give you the money you need to get back to your country, my son,' said the crystal merchant. The boy said nothing. He got up, adjusted his clothing, and picked up his pouch. "'I'll work for you,' he said. And after a long silence, he added, I need money to buy some sheep. Part 2 The boy had been working for the crystal merchant for almost a month, and he could see that it wasn't exactly the kind of job that would make him happy. The merchant spent the entire day mumbling behind the counter, telling the boy to be careful with the pieces and not to break anything. But he had stayed with the job because the merchant, although he was an old grouch, treated him fairly. The boy received a good commission for each piece he sold, and he had already been able to put some money aside. That morning he had done some calculating. If he continued to work every day as he had been, he would need a whole year just to be able to buy some sheep. "'I'd like to build a display case for the crystal,' the boy said to the merchant. "'We could place it outside and attract those people who pass at the bottom of the hill.' "'I've never had one before,' the merchant answered. People will pass by and bump into it, and pieces will be broken. Well, when I took my sheep through the fields, some of them might have died if we had come across a snake, but that's the way life is with sheep and with shepherds. The merchant turned to a customer who wanted three crystal glasses. He was selling better than ever, as if time had turned back to the old days when the street had been one of Tangier's major attractions. "'Business has really improved,' he said to the boy, after the customer had left. 
I'm doing much better, and soon you'll be able to return to your sheep. Why ask more out of life? Because we have to respond to omens, the boy said, almost without meaning it. Then he regretted what he had said, because the merchant had never met the king. It's called the principle of favourability, beginner's luck, because life wants you to achieve your destiny, the old king had said. But the merchant understood what the boy had said. The boy's very presence in the shop was an omen, and as time passed and money was pouring into the cash drawer, he had no regrets about having hired the boy. The boy was being paid more money than he deserved, because the merchant, thinking that sales wouldn't amount to much, had offered the boy a high commission rate. He had assumed that he would soon return to his sheep. "'Why do you want to get to the pyramids?' he asked, to get away from the business of the display. "'Because I've always heard about them,' the boy answered, saying nothing about his dream. The treasure was now nothing but a painful memory, and he tried to avoid thinking about it. "'I don't know anyone around here who would want to cross the desert just to see the pyramids,' said the merchant. "'They're just a pile of stones. You could build one in your backyard.' "'You've never had dreams of travel,' said the boy, turning to wait on a customer who had entered the shop. Two days later, the merchant spoke to the boy about the display. "'I don't much like change,' he said. "'You and I aren't like Hassan, that rich merchant. "'If he makes a buying mistake, it doesn't affect him much, "'but we too have to live with our mistakes.' "'That's true enough,' the boy thought ruefully. "'Why did you think we should have the display?' I want to get back to my sheep faster. We have to take advantage when luck is on our side, and do as much to help it as it's doing to help us. It's called the principle of favourability, or beginner's luck. The merchant was silent for a few moments. Then he spoke, The prophet gave us the Koran and left us just five obligations to satisfy during our lives. The most important is to believe only in the one true God. The others are to pray five times a day, fast during Ramadan, and be charitable to the poor. He stopped there. His eyes filled with tears as he spoke of the prophet. He was a devout man, and even with all his impatience, he wanted to live his life in accordance with Muslim law. What's the fifth obligation? the boy asked. Two days ago, you said that I had never dreamed of travel, the merchant answered. The fifth obligation of every Muslim is a pilgrimage. We are obliged at least once in our lives to visit the holy city of Mecca. Mecca is a lot further away than the pyramids. When I was young, all I wanted to do was put together enough money to start this shop. I thought that some day I'd be rich and could go to Mecca. I began to make some money, but I could never bring myself to leave someone in charge of the shop. The crystals are delicate things. At the same time, people were passing my shop all the time, heading for Mecca. Some of them were rich pilgrims, travelling in caravans with servants and camels, but most of the people making the pilgrimage were poorer than I. All who went there were happy at having done so. They placed the symbols of the pilgrimage on the doors of their houses. One of them a cobbler who made his living mending boots said that he had travelled for almost a year through the desert, but that he got more tired when he had to walk through the streets of Tangier buying his leather. "'Well, why don't you go to Mecca now?' asked the boy. "'Because it's the thought of Mecca that keeps me alive. That's what helps me face those days that are all the same.' 
these mute crystals on the shelves and lunch and dinner at that same horrible cafe. I'm afraid that if my dream is realised, I'll have no reason to go on living. Your dream is about your sheep and the pyramids, but you're different to me, because you want to realise your dreams. I just want to dream about Mecca. I've already imagined a thousand times crossing the desert, arriving at the plaza of the sacred stone, the seven times I walk around it before allowing myself to touch it. I've already imagined the people who would be at my side, and those in front of me, and the conversations and prayers we would share. But I'm afraid that it would all be a disappointment, so I prefer just to dream about it. That day, the merchant gave the boy permission to build the display. Not everyone can see his dreams come true in the same way. Two more months passed, and the shelf brought many customers into the crystal shop. The boy estimated that if he worked for six more months, he could return to Spain and buy sixty sheep, and yet another sixty. In less than a year, he would have doubled his flock, and he would be able to do business with the Arabs because he was now able to speak their strange language. Since that morning in the marketplace, he had never again made use of Urim and Thummim, because Egypt was now just as distant a dream for him as was Mecca for the merchant. Anyway, the boy had become happy in his work, and thought all the time about the day when he would disembark at Tarifa as a winner. "'You must always know what it is that you want,' the old king had said. The boy knew, and was now working toward it. Maybe it was his treasure to have wound up in that strange land, met up with a thief and doubled the size of his flock without spending a cent. He was proud of himself. He had learned some important things, like how to deal in crystal, and about the language without words, and about omens. One afternoon, he had seen a man at the top of the hill complaining that it was impossible to find a decent place to get something to drink after such a climb. The boy, accustomed to recognising omens, spoke to the merchant. Let's sell tea to the people who climb the hill. Lots of places sell tea around here, the merchant said. But we could sell tea in crystal glasses. The people will enjoy the tea and will want to buy the glasses. I have been told that beauty is the great seducer of men. The merchant didn't respond, but that afternoon, after saying his prayers and closing the shop, he invited the boy to sit with him and share his hookah, that strange pipe used by the Arabs. "'What is it you're looking for?' asked the old merchant. "'I've already told you. I need to buy my sheep back, so I have to earn the money to do so.' The merchant put some new coals in the hookah and inhaled deeply. "'I've had this shop for thirty years. I know good crystal from bad, and everything else there is to know about crystal. I know its dimensions and how it behaves. If we serve tea in crystal, the shop is going to expand.' And then I'll have to change my way of life. Well, isn't that good? I'm already used to the way things are. Before you came, I was thinking about how much time I had wasted in the same place, while my friends had moved on and either went bankrupt or did better than they had before. It made me very depressed. Now I can see that it hasn't been too bad. The shop is exactly the size I always wanted it to be, I don't want to change anything, because I don't know how to deal with change. I'm used to the way I am. The boy didn't know what to say. The old man continued, You have been a real blessing to me. Today I understand something I didn't see before. 
Every blessing ignored becomes a curse. I don't want anything else in life, but you are forcing me to look at wealth and at horizons I have never known. Now that I have seen them, and now that I see how immense my possibilities are, I'm going to feel worse than I did before you arrived, because I know the things I should be able to accomplish, and I don't want to do so. It's good I refrained from saying anything to the baker in Tarifa, thought the boy to himself. They went on smoking the pipe for a while as the sun began to set. They were conversing in Arabic, and the boy was proud of himself for being able to do so. There had been a time when he thought that his sheep could teach him everything he needed to know about the world, but they could never have taught him Arabic. There are probably other things in the world that the sheep can't teach me, thought the boy as he regarded the old merchant. All they ever do, really, is look for food and water. And maybe it wasn't that they were teaching me, but that I was learning from them. Maktub, the merchant said finally, what does that mean? You would have to have been born an Arab to understand, he answered, but in your language it would be something like, it is written. And as he smothered the coals in the hookah, he told the boy that he could begin to sell tea in the crystal glasses. Sometimes there's just no way to hold back the river. The men climbed to the hill, and they were tired when they reached the top, but there they saw a crystal shop that offered refreshing mint tea. They went in to drink the tea, which was served in beautiful crystal glasses. "'My wife never thought of this,' said one, and he bought some crystal. He was entertaining guests that night, and the guests would be impressed by the beauty of the glassware." The other man remarked that tea was always more delicious when it was served in crystal, because the aroma was retained. The third said that it was a tradition in the Orient to use crystal glasses for tea because it had magical powers. Before long, the news spread, and a great many people began to climb the hill to see the shop that was doing something new in a trade that was so old. Other shops were opened that served tea in crystal, but they weren't at the top of a hill, and they had little business. Eventually, the merchant had to hire two more employees. He began to import enormous quantities of tea along with his crystal, and his shop was sought out by men and women with a thirst for things new. And in that way, the months passed. The boy awoke before dawn. It had been eleven months and nine days since he had first set foot on the African continent. He was dressed in his Arabian clothing of white linen, bought especially for this day, he put his headcloth in place and secured it with a ring made of camel skin. Wearing his new sandals, he descended the stairs silently. The city was still sleeping. He prepared himself a sandwich and drank some hot tea from a crystal glass. Then he sat in the sun-filled doorway, smoking the hookah. He smoked in silence, thinking of nothing, and listening to the sound of the wind that brought the scent of the desert. When he had finished his smoke, he reached into one of his pockets and sat there for a few moments, regarding what he had withdrawn. It was a bundle of money, enough to buy himself a hundred and twenty sheep, a return ticket and a licence to import products from Africa into his own country. He waited patiently for the merchant to awaken and open the shop, then the two went off to have some more tea. "'I'm leaving today.' said the boy. I have the money I need to buy my sheep, and you have the money you need to go to Mecca. The old man said nothing. Will you give me your blessing? asked the boy. You have helped me. 
The man continued to prepare his tea, saying nothing. Then he turned to the boy. "'I am proud of you,' he said. "'You brought a new feeling into my crystal shop. "'But you know that I'm not going to go to Mecca, "'just as you know that you're not going to buy your sheep.' "'Who told you that?' asked the boy, startled. "'Maktub,' said the old crystal merchant, "'and he gave the boy his blessing.' The boy went to his room and packed his belongings. They filled three sacks. As he was leaving, he saw in the corner of the room his old shepherd's pouch. It was bunched up, and he had hardly thought of it for a long time. As he took his jacket out of the pouch, thinking to give it to someone in the street, the two stones fell to the floor, Urim and Thummim. It made the boy think of the old king, and it startled him to realise how long it had been since he had thought of him. For nearly a year he had been working incessantly, thinking only of putting aside enough money so that he could return to Spain with pride. Never stop dreaming, the old king had said. Follow the omens. The boy picked up Urim and Thummim, and once again had the strange sensation that the old king was nearby. He had worked hard for a year, and the omens were that it was time to go. I'm going to go back to doing just what I did before the boy thought, even though the sheep didn't teach me to speak Arabic. But the sheep had taught him something even more important, that there was a language in the world that everyone understood, a language the boy had used throughout the time that he was trying to improve things at the shop. It was the language of enthusiasm, of things accomplished with love and purpose, and as part of a search for something he believed in and desired. Tangier was no longer a strange city, and he felt that, just as he had conquered this place, he could conquer the world. When you want something, all the universe conspires to help you achieve it, the old king had said. But the old king hadn't said anything about being robbed, or about endless deserts, or about people who know what their dreams are but don't want to realise them. The old king hadn't told him that the pyramids were just a pile of stones, or that anyone could build one in his backyard, and he had forgotten to mention that when you have enough money to buy a flock larger than the one you had before, you should buy it. The boy picked up his pouch and put it with his other things. He went down the stairs and found the merchant waiting over a foreign couple, while two other customers walked about the shop, drinking tea from crystal glasses. It was more activity than usual for this time of the morning. From where he was stood, he saw for the first time that the old merchant's hair was very much like the hair of the old king. He remembered the smile of the candy seller on his first day in Tangier when he had nothing to eat and nowhere to go. That smile had also been like the old king's smile. It's almost as if he had been here and left his mark, he thought, and yet none of these people has ever met the old king. On the other hand, he said that he always appeared to help those who were trying to realise their destiny. He left without saying goodbye to the crystal merchant. He didn't want to cry with the other people there. He was going to miss the place and all the good things he had learned. He was more confident in himself, though, and felt as though he could conquer the world. But I'm going back to the fields that I know, to take care of my flock again. He said that to himself with certainty, but he was no longer happy with his decision. He had worked for an entire year to make a dream come true, and that dream, minute by minute, was becoming less important, maybe because that wasn't really his dream. 
Who knows, maybe it's better to be like the crystal merchant, never to go to Mecca and just go through life wanting to do so, he thought, again trying to convince himself. But as he held Urim and Thummim in his hand, they had transmitted to him the strength and will of the old king. By coincidence, or maybe it was an omen, the boy thought, he came to the bar he had entered on his first day there. The thief wasn't there, and the owner brought him a cup of tea. I can always go back to being a shepherd, the boy thought. I learned how to care for sheep, and I haven't forgotten how that's done. But maybe I'll never have another chance to get to the pyramids of Egypt. The old man wore a breastplate of gold, and he knew about my past. He really was a king, a wise king. The hills of Andalusia were only two hours away, but there was an entire desert between him and the pyramids. Yet the boy felt that there was another way to regard his situation. He was actually two hours closer to his treasure. The fact that the two hours had stretched into an entire year didn't matter. I know why I want to get back to my flock, he thought. I understand sheep. They're no longer a problem, and they can be good friends. On the other hand, I don't know if the desert can be a friend. And it's in the desert that I have to search for my treasure. If I don't find it, I can always go home. I finally have enough money and all the time I need. Why not? He suddenly felt tremendously happy. He could always go back to being a shepherd. He could always become a crystal salesman again. Maybe the world had other hidden treasures, but he had a dream, and he had met with a king. That doesn't happen to just anyone. He was planning as he left the bar. He had remembered that one of the crystal merchant suppliers transported his crystal by means of caravans that crossed the desert. He held Urim and Thummim in his hand. Because of those two stones, he was once again on his way to treasure. I am always nearby when someone wants to realise their destiny, the old king had told him. What could it cost to go over to the supplier's warehouse and find out if the pyramids really were that far away? The Englishmen were sitting on a bench in a structure that smelled of animals, sweat and dust. It was part warehouse, part corral. I never thought I'd end up in a place like this, he thought, as he leafed through the pages of a chemical journal. Ten years at the university, and here I am in a corral. But he had to move on. He believed in omens. All his life and all his studies were aimed at finding the one true language of the universe. First, he had studied Esperanto, then the world's religions, and now it was alchemy. He knew how to speak Esperanto. He understood all the major religions well, but he wasn't yet an alchemist. He had unravelled the truths behind important questions, but his studies had taken him to a point beyond which he could not seem to go. He had tried in vain to establish a relationship with an alchemist, but alchemists were strange people who thought only about themselves and almost always refused to help him. Who knows, maybe they had failed to discover the secret of the master work, the philosopher's stone, and for this reason kept their knowledge to themselves. He had already spent much of the fortune left to him by his father, fruitlessly seeking the philosopher's stone. He had spent enormous amounts of time at the great libraries of the world and had purchased all the rarest and most important volumes on alchemy. In one, he had read that, many years ago, a famous Arabian alchemist had visited Europe. It was said that he was more than 200 years old and that he had discovered the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life. The Englishman had been profoundly impressed by the story. 
but he would never have thought it more than just a myth had not a friend of his, returning from an archaeological expedition in the desert, told him about an Arab that was possessed of exceptional powers. He lives at the El Fayum Oasis, his friend had said, and people say that he is 200 years old and is able to transform any metal into gold. The Englishman could not contain his excitement. He cancelled all his commitments and pulled together the most important of his books, and now here he was, sitting inside a dusty, smelly warehouse. Outside, a huge caravan was being prepared for a crossing of the Sahara and was scheduled to pass through El Fayum. I'm going to find that damned alchemist, the Englishman thought, and the odour of the animals became a bit more tolerable. A young Arab, also loaded down with baggage, entered and greeted the Englishman. "'Where are you bound?' asked the young Arab. "'I'm going into the desert,' the man answered, turning back to his reading. He didn't want any conversation at this point. What he needed to do was review all he had learned over the years, because the alchemist would certainly put him to the test.' The young Arab took out a book and began to read. The book was written in Spanish. That's good, thought the Englishman. He spoke Spanish better than Arabic, and if this boy was going to El Fayum, there would be someone to talk to when there were no other important things to do. That's strange, said the boy, as he tried once again to read the burial scene that began the book. I've been trying for two years to read this book, and I never get past these first few pages. Even without a king to provide an interruption, he was unable to concentrate. He still had some doubts about the decision he had made, but he was able to understand one thing. Making a decision was only the beginning of things. When someone makes a decision, he is really diving into a strong current that will carry him to places he had never dreamed of when he first made the decision. When I decided to seek out my treasure... I never imagined that I'd wind up working in a crystal shop, he thought, and joining this caravan may have been my decision, but where it goes is going to be a mystery to me. Nearby was the Englishman reading a book. He seemed unfriendly and had looked irritated when the boy had entered. They might even have become friends, but the Englishman closed off the conversation. The boy closed his book. He felt that he didn't want to do anything that might make him look like the Englishman, he took Urim and Thummim from his pocket and began playing with them. The stranger shouted, Urim and Thummim! In a flash, the boy put them back in his pocket. They're not for sale, he said. They're not worth much, the Englishman answered. They're only made of rock crystal, and there are millions of rock crystals in the earth, but those who know about such things would know that those are Urim and Thummim. I didn't know they had them in this part of the world. They were given to me as a present by a king, the boy said. The stranger didn't answer. Instead, he put his hand in his pocket and took out two stones that were the same as the boy's. Did you say a king? he asked. I guess you don't believe that a king would talk to someone like me, a shepherd, he said, wanting to end the conversation. Not at all. It was shepherds who were the first to recognise a king that the rest of the world refused to acknowledge, so it's not surprising that kings would talk to shepherds and he went on, fearing that the boy wouldn't understand what he was talking about. It's in the Bible, the same book that taught me about Urim and Thummim. Those stones were the only form of divination permitted by God. The priests carried them in a golden breastplate. The boy was suddenly happy to be there at the warehouse. Maybe this is an omen, said the Englishman half aloud. Who told you about omens? The boy's interest was increasing by the moment. 
everything in life is an omen, said the Englishman, now closing the journal he was reading. There is a universal language, understood by everybody, but already forgotten. I am in search of that universal language, among other things. That's why I'm here. I have to find a man who knows that universal language. An alchemist. The conversation was interrupted by the warehouse boss. You're in luck, you two, the fat Arab said. There's a caravan leaving today for El Fayoum. But I'm going to Egypt, the boy said. Al Fayoum is in Egypt, said the Arab. What kind of Arab are you? That's a good luck omen, the Englishman said, after the fat Arab had gone out. If I could, I'd write a huge encyclopedia just about the words luck and coincidence. It's with those words that the universal language is written. He told the boy it was no coincidence that he had met him with Urim and Thummim in his hand, and he asked the boy if he too were in search of the alchemist. I'm looking for a treasure, said the boy and he immediately regretted having said it, but the Englishman appeared not to attach any importance to it. In a way, so am I, he said. I don't even know what alchemy is, the boy was saying, when the warehouse boss called to them to come outside. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed part two of The Alchemist by Paul Quello. I release many of the stories I narrate as self-contained audiobooks. Alice in Wonderland, The Call of Cthulhu and more are available from thewelltoldtale.net if you're interested in that, or head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash thewelltoldtale if you want more classic stories. There are links to both in the description. I'll be back next week with the penultimate part of this story. I hope you can join me.